welcome you to this morning's session, um, uh, which is entitled The New Religious Landscape of Southern California. My name is Richard Hecht, and I'll be introducing uh, sequentially uh, the members of this panel who I know very, very well and have been working with our project on religious pluralism in Southern California um, for uh, some period of time now. And so I've gotten to know each of them very, very well. Um, I, I, I'm sort of in a difficult situation here. I, um, I came down to, the, to hear uh, Gustav Niebuhr's uh, lecture. How many of you heard that yesterday? <coughs> I came, well, I, I was with you, and I left my diskette with my paper and the computer in my office, and uh, I thought I would take it home and print it out. And, um, well, it's still on my computer, and I didn't have a chance to go over there, but I can do the paper without it, I think. <laughs> Um, in fact, it may be helpful for me to do it without the, without the written paper because uh, I wanted, I've always wanted to be in an academic conference where you could read Allen Ginsberg. Howell, you remember that, 1956? And in many ways, uh, the paper started out by quoting uh, portions of all three um, parts of Ginsberg's Howell. And uh, remember that in the 1950s, the American city um, was a place of chaos and disorder. And uh, you remember some of those wonderful images that Ginsburg brings up of the, uh, the angel-headed hipsters bearing their brains uh, to the starry dynamo of the heavens, being consumed by the city and its life. Um, in many respects, uh, we often think of cities as this chaotic, um, desolate environment. But in fact, we in the study of religions... Uh, I'm just a historian of religions, um, have not taken cities seriously as the venue in which, as Robert Orsi has described, the cartographies of being have been acted out. Um, so in many respects, even though I am sort of a Los Angelino um, uh, and lived most of my life in the city of Los Angeles, uh, uh, I was really unaware of uh, how important urban life is to the formation of new religious pluralism. And the way that I wanted to get at that was by taking us back to September 18, 1926, when, uh, when Walter Benjamin wrote a letter from Berlin to his lifelong friend at that point, uh, Gerhard, at the, uh, he always addressed him as Gerhard Scholem, who had already emigrated to Palestine and was teaching Jewish mysticism at the new Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And on the 18th of September, um, Benjamin wrote to uh, uh, Sholem saying that he had a wonderful announcement to make for him, a very significant project that he had been working on at that point in 1926 for three years, uh, a little book entitled Einbahnstrasse, One Way Street, would be published shortly. And he was very excited about it, and he said that it, it contains, um, and in the English translation of the correspondence between Sholem and Benjamin, the term uh, denkbuilder uh, is translated as aphorisms. And they're not really aphorisms. They're something like the simple uh, translation, thought images. Uh, thought images. And... Benjamin's publication of Einbahnstrasse, One Way Street, uh, marked a turning point, a cycle in his life uh, and his work that would continue 
until his death in 1940. It would culminate in that manuscript that was lost and then found and then lost again, the Arcades Project, um, in which Benjamin set out on the topic of trying to understand the logics of materiality, the logics of the urban environment. And consequently, in uh, uh, opening this session on the new religious landscapes of, uh, of uh, Southern California, I took that image of the Einbahnstrasse, the one-way street, to take you across L.A., through the diversity of religious pluralism. Now, obviously, the people who will follow and be presenting on various topics this morning and this afternoon um, will also take you through these places. But let's just consider L.A. for just a moment. And I can call it L.A. because I'm from that place. And I can't even quote uh, uh, Ginsburg again. Remember that line, he, he who loves L.A. is L.A.? Um, <laughs> But in many ways, many ways, Los Angeles, despite all the suburbanization to the south, um, to the east, um, and to the north, is really a one-way street. Its historical development runs from, you can see, uh, uh, the uh, downtown civic center across the Century City. So I decided to just um, um, go on a one-way street, Olympic, Pico, uh, across this area, and see what I could find. And of course, uh, the first image that you're struck by in Los Angeles... Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I have to read a text of Benjamin's with you. In Einbahnstrasse, there's this... He only mentions religion, I think, three times. Once in the antique shop where he finds a reliquary that opens up and he talks about the crucifixion and its meaning. The second place is this text called Marseille Cathedral. Uh, and the third place is, at the end, the Luna Park, the telos of the uh, one-way street. And he writes, on the sunniest, least frequented square stands the cathedral. This place is deserted despite the fact that near its feet are La Joliette, the harbor to the south, and a proletarian district to the north. As a loading point for intangible, unfathomable goods, the bleak building stands between K and warehouse. N nearly 40 years were spent on it, but when all complete in 1893, uh, space and time had conspired victoriously in this monument, against, pardon the, uh, mist, uh, the typo, against its architects and sponsors, and the wealth of the clergy had given rise to a gigantic railway station that could never be open to traffic. The facade gives an indication of the waiting rooms within where passengers of the first and to fourth class classes, though before God they are all equal, wedged among their spiritual possessions as if between suitcases, sit reading hymn books that with their concordances and cross-references look very much like international timetables, extracts from the railway traffic regulations in the form of pastoral letters, hang on the walls, tariffs for the discount on special trips on Satan's luxury trains are consulted, and cabinets where the long-distance traveler can discreetly wash are kept in readiness as confessionals. This, the Marseille, this is the Marseille religion station. Sleeping cars to eternity depart from here at mass time. 
Now, what is so interesting about this text is the complete integration of material contemporary life with religion, religious buildings. Now, let me just very quickly, because I don't want to take time from my colleagues, um, remind you that L.A., in its architectural and artistic traditions, is a place where transcendence and imminence, the two uh, vital dynamics of all religious experience, meet. So here in the Museum of Contemporary Art, you have a manifestation of that um, um, search for transcendence in the midst of an imminent material world. But just consider Benjamin and the Marseille Railway State at uh, the uh, Marseille Cathedral. Uh, here we are, Bunker Hill. And on the one hand, we confront Franco Geary's Walt Disney's concert hall uh, in Bunker Hill. Forget the, uh, excuse the typographical error again. But uh, again, here is Geary's attempt to materialize uh, transcendence and imminence. Uh, but you know what's just a block away from it? Just walk down that street, the new cathedral uh, of Our Lady of the Angels. And I don't know how many of you have visited the cathedral since its opening in September, but certainly Rafael Mineo's uh, architectural building is one of the greatest architectural achievements in religious art uh, and architecture of the 20th century. Um, it is filled, of course, with extraordinary pieces of art. So uh, we confront Lita Albuquerque's Fountain to the Pilgrim, um, uh, which contains in it um, the, um, the uh, text from the Gospels, I shall give you living water, uh, and 86 different languages. The 86, I believe, languages that are used in the liturgy of the Catholic Church daily in Los Angeles. Um, but then, um, when the cathedral was uh, dedicated as a sacred spot, it was later, this plaza, this entranceway, was uh, integrated into a kind of sacred time with, um, around Lita Albuquerque's fountain with the constellations of the heavens as the cathedral was dedicated in September of 2002. So you have a sense of the integration in this um, uh, extraordinary complex of transcendence and imminence of the interconnection um, of time and space. But of course, uh, we enter the cathedral through the extraordinary doors of Robert Graham and this new image of the Virgin Mary, uh, which is one of the most complex and interesting uh, uh, renderings of uh, the Virgin that we have. Now, of course, one architectural critic uh, wrote about this, that this looks like uh, 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 the Virgin Mary as a surf girl who just got off the beach at Venice. Uh, well, I, I think it's much more complex than that. Uh, this is a Mary for the entire city. Uh, this is a Mary that uh, reflects the vibrancy uh, of the city of Los Angeles and could be a Mary for Jew, uh, uh, Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, whatever. Uh, this is a true Mary of the hood, as another um, uh, um, commentator suggested. And here, of course, are how Graham integrated something like over 100 Marian traditions into the doors of the, of the cathedral. Uh, here is the interfaith um, uh, mass that was celebrated in dedication. Uh, this was specifically dedicated to the artists, uh, the builders, and the architects and their, and their staff. Uh, but obviously it shows in a moment um, uh, the Catholic Church's effort to 
uh, understand this place, not just as Catholic sacred space, but public uh, uh, sacred space. And here is, of course, what the cathedral looks like from the altar looking west. Uh, surrounding uh, the cathedral space is, of course, this extraordinary rendering by John Nava of Ojai of the communion of the saints. And in this rendering of the communion of the saints, you again have this interplay between the transcendence of the cathedral space and the imminence of the people who are portrayed in the images of the communion of the saints. But even more fantastic, as you look towards the altar, uh, uh, one of uh, Nava's additional tapestries um, is of the map of Los Angeles and its freeways and its cities. And so right there with the text from God will dwell with them, which I think is from the book of Exodus, right there is downtown Los Angeles um, uh, in the map. And you can see some of the freeways and uh, some of the streets that you may be familiar with. But one of the most outstanding, uh, astonishing, um, uh, literally um, uh, uh, extraordinary pieces was this fountain. And when I saw this fountain, I knew it right away. Even though I hadn't seen it before, I recognized the, the, the uh, cut on the rocks, um, uh, the color of the stone, and I knew that this stone was from the city of Jerusalem. Um, and then what is most uh, uh, extraordinary is right there in the plaza, is a Hebrew inscription taken from Pirkei Avot, which is one of the tracts of the Mishnah, which says, it's a text from, uh, I believe, Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Just, um, who lived in the first century of the Common Era, a rough contemporary of Jesus, a rough contemporary of Hillel the Great, and it says, upon three things the world stands, Torah, Avodah, and Gimilut Hasidim. Uh, the law, um, uh, service, and acts of loving kindness. Now what is striking to that, uh, to me about that, to find this Hebrew inscription from the Mishnah in Catholic public space transforms or indicates how extraordinary the transformations of Catholic Jewish relations have been in uh, the last 50 years. Um, that's uh, that's the, the Cardinal, uh, Roger Mahoney, I believe is his name. Um, I had a picture of me standing with him, but I cut that out for time's sake. Um, but if you go a little east of that, if you go east of, uh, uh, of um, the cathedral, you get to East Los Angeles. And that's where we start the Einbahnstrasse, our one-way street of Los Angeles where all religion comes together. And this Church of Our Lady of Guadalupe in East Los Angeles, uh, done at the end of the 1920s, uh, which is one of the most extraordinary little gems of religious architecture uh, in Los Angeles that hardly anyone except the immediate community visits. Uh, here I arrived uh, uh, at uh, the beginning of a quinceanera, um, and uh, uh, inside you have a kind of uh, um, uh, Catholic architectural space which is reflective of the 1920s, of course, almost a kind of deeply uh, Latino piety that is expressed uh, in the building. Down the road, down the roadway, uh, we have Our Lady of uh, Lourdes, a very different kind of uh, uh, claim to uh, public space. Um, and here we found some uh, young uh, women who were taking flowers from their flower shop 
um, uh, across for the quinceanera that was going on one after another in East Los Angeles in um, Our Lady of Lourdes. But everywhere, of course, um, there is the um, Virgin of Guadalupe, literally everywhere. So here's a little meditation garden in Our Lady of Lourdes, which I understand is in, um, I think, France, isn't it? In the Pyrenees? That's the last time. When I visited, it was. Um, uh, but then somehow you get this combination of uh, a, um, a Latino, uh, Mexican uh, virgin um, now taking on um, the space of the environment everywhere. Uh, every street corner, uh, our uh, Lady of Guadalupe is articulated, uh, some relatively crude. Uh, for example, this cat who's um, selling uh, fruit drinks. Um, and, of course, his business is um, looked over uh, uh, by Our Lady of Guadalupe. Or here this um, uh, storefront uh, market, uh, again, uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe. But as you just walk along there, and this is one of the most important things that we can draw from Benjamin, is the density of religious experience in the urban environment. So here we're walking along East LA and we come to a Nichiren Buddhist temple. And you walk out in the back, um, you find a meditation garden. This is a garden where you are to pray for the merit of all who have died. Um, um, but right across the street you have um, a um, Jehovah's Witnesses place. Um, literally, as you walk through Los Angeles, East Los Angeles, on our Einbahnstrasse, on Whittier Boulevard, um, you come to the varieties of religion. So here is a Botanica uh, selling a, a wild collection of um, uh, religious materials. Here is the front window. You know, you have the skull with a Nazi helmet on. Uh, some, some busts of Native Americans, um, all of that uh, being uh, a part of this tradition. And of course, the interpenetration of modernity with its extraordinary speed with a kind of rec rec reclamation of the Aztec past. <laughs> Um, and this was striking to me because here is this guy who sort of uh, seated on, or was dancing around on the circle, on the outside of the circle, um, and he's the hummingbird um, who ultimately is uh, uh, the prime indicator that this is not just simply a kind of folklorico dance uh, kind of uh, tradition. It is also a reenactment of classical Aztec myths now in Ruben Salazar Park in East Los Angeles. And then, then the biographies, um, and here I guess we can come back to Rob, uh, Robert Orsi and his idea of the cartographies of being, because uh, in many of the murals there's a autobiographical component. So here is Don Gennaro's little mini-mall, uh, and it documents Don Gennaro's uh, movement from a rural Mexican environment to his mini-mall uh, mini um, that is portrayed here uh, on the left of uh, the uh, mural. Um, I like this one, uh, the Whittier Market uh, selling uh, pure water, but then look at this, Coca-Cola alongside of Anubis and Horus, and um, uh, it's as if Saqqara uh, was somehow being re-inscribed uh, re in uh, East Los Angeles. Everywhere, of course, Pentecostal traditions uh, penetrating um, um, uh, the uh, Latino neighborhood. Uh, literally every block, another Pentecostal storefront church. 
Um, but as you move along Whittier Boulevard, uh, westward now on our Einbahnstrasse, our one-way street, you come to uh, Japantown and the varieties of Buddhist um, traditions that are alive and well and being articulated in the context of Los Angeles, the Jodo Shu Buddhist Temple in Japantown, which is, of course, the center of their mission in all of North America. And here is their uh, altar. Uh, and, of course, there are adjustments that are made. I don't think, uh, are these things uh, common um, in Japan? Um, these, I think, uh, the Japanese uh, 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 Buddhist monk who was there says, we don't have these in Japan. And I said, oh, really? Um, of course, uh, you continue along. Now we have to go down to Exposition Boulevard towards USC uh, and the um, Umar Ibn Kitab Mosque um, uh, near uh, the USC campus. Um, and um, uh, this mosque, of course, draws uh, people from uh, the tr traditional uh, Arab lands or Muslim lands, but it also is the home for uh, many um, uh, American black Muslims who um, uh, uh, worship in that context. And right across the street is this guy, a Pentecostal minister who has a storefront church, and he goes to these mini markets like 7-Eleven, etc., getting food three times a day to offer in his storefront church. Um, Everywhere, bookstores, um, you sort of pass these by unless you're looking for them on uh, Olympic Boulevard. Um, here's Olympic Boulevard um, uh, in what is called now the Latino Byzantine Quarter. Uh, and here, of course, is St. Sophia Church in which uh, Metropolitan Barcos um, has really decided to renovate the public space around this area. And, of course... Um, here is the traditional iconostasis, one of the beautiful um, uh, representations of art, of Greek uh, Orthodox art in Los Angeles. Um, but he has a massive campaign around the wall of the Blessing Hand where you can uh, have your name inscribed, your family inscribed, um, for the B Byzantine Latino Quarter. And here is this um, uh, eight-story building or seven-story building with this mural, which I think is so important which says, we are each of us angels with one wing. We can only fly embracing each other. Uh, and this, of course, brings this other dimension, which is completely forgotten about in great uh, urbanists like, uh, I'm, uh, here is Edward W. Soja, our colleague at UCLA, who has written, I think, some of the best urban studies of Los Angeles, but there's not a word in this wonderful book about religion and how it trans forms public space. There's a lot about Japanese uh, immigrants, um, uh, Thai immigrants, uh, Indian immigrants, etc. cetera, uh, but it becomes only ethnicity. It does not recognize how, in this case, uh, religion uh, claims space. Um, so density and the claim to space are components. But it reverberates in the Byzantine Latino quarter. And by the way, he doesn't mean Latino like we might mean Latino, uh, namely people from the Spanish-speaking Central and, uh, you know, that, that whole environment. He means Byzantine Latino as the true church before the schism between East and West. But it reverberates. So here is St. Thomas the Apostle Catholic Church, really just 50 yards away from St. Sophia, uh, which has historically been 
uh, an Irish Catholic urban uh, uh, church, which is now uh, occupied entirely um, by a uh, congregation of San Salvadorans and Hondurans. Uh, here they're preparing uh, uh, Salvadoran foods. Uh, and they have three Marian uh, traditions there. Uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, of course. Um, uh, Our Lady of the Peace from San Salvador. And then fin uh, finally, Our Lady of Suyapa of Honduras. And there is no conflict whatsoever in the devotional pieties of those who uh, venerate one over the other. But then if you go out, oops, if you go out into the courtyard, when the church in the 1940s was Irish Catholic, here the um, uh, Kellner family, I believe that's it, um, dedicated a Pieta, uh, sort of the old European style. Um, um, but, of course, the street takes on a calendar as well. Our Einbahnstrasse takes on um, the temporal patterns of religions in the city. So here these guys are trying to put up a portable sukkah in the fall for the festival of Sukkot in the Jewish year. And they had them all rolled up. And uh, my colleague who was with me said, uh, how do these things go up? And so they said, we'll show you. It took them about an hour um, to put it up. But they're having a discussion about, you know, is it close enough to the wall, far enough away, whatever it is. And they're just working uh, on the streets in Los Angeles. Again, in the same neighborhood, which was Jewish and is now becoming Korean Pentecostal, we find the Gracious Art Church, which shows the interpenetration of Pentecostalism into the Korean American community. Um, and also, then you have the Taverna. Uh, in the Byzantine Latino Quarter, where you have Papa Christos's catering uh, uh, company, um, and you go inside and you can get like you know dolma and uh, shawarma and all that other stuff, whatever they have in a Greek taverna, uh, ritzina and all that, and a taco uh, or an enchilada, um, uh, uh, and alongside of the Byzantine Latino community, you also or Latino Quarter, you also have. Um, the um, um, oldest um, uh, Korean Buddhist temple in Los Angeles, uh, which is very, very traditional um, uh, in its iconography and sacred space. And, of course, the traditions of Islam. As we go along the Einbahnstrasse, we have to sort of dip down to Culver City now, uh, from Olympic um, to the King Fahd Mosque in Culver City. Um, uh, again, in this uh, tradition. It's built on money from the Saudi Arabian uh, government. Uh, and they're quite proud of the fact that the, uh, the mosque was dedicated by one of the members of the royal family. But if you just go a little bit further south, um, you come to the Great Western Forum. You remember where the Lakers played uh, for many, many years? And we know the Lakers are going to do better tonight, but... Um, um, this is the Great Western Forum, which is now one of many megachurches in Southern California. Megachurches that we'll hear about. This is the, faith, the Faithful Bible Center uh, Church, which every Sunday morning has a congregation of about 13,000 people, at least according to Kenneth Olmer, who is a fantastically successful uh, religious entrepreneur. Um, and his church now owns literally uh, many, many acres of prime real estate 
um, in um, West, West Los Angeles, which will become uh, primed for Bush's faith-based initiatives and the transformation of uh, the economy in um, um, Inglewood, California. Um, but of course, if you go away from the uh, urban um, uh, tra uh, tradition, uh, uh, we come to extraordinary gems of religious architecture. This is the Father Sarah Church in Camarillo, which I think is perhaps one of the greatest examples of how traditional religious architecture uh, reflects the extraordinary pluralism of California. Of course, it recalls immediately uh, the legacy of Father Sarah, um, but as you enter into it, I mean, it appears to have many of the traditions of uh, uh, traditional pieties of Catholicism. Here is a relic from Father Sarah, uh, from his tunic and a bone of his. Uh, but then you enter into it, and you enter into the architecture of the Lateran Church in Rome, um, um, uh, but extraordinary in its meditative abilities and powers. Um, so we come to the end of a kind of Einbahnstrasse um, uh, that has taken us really from East Los Angeles um, to the foothills of Camarillo. Um, and along the way, um, we see how um, articulate uh, or how articulated in the context of everyday urban space uh, the continued pursuit for transcendence and imminence is articulated by uh, the religious art landscape of California. With that, uh, that's sort of an introduction to my colleagues who are much better at all of this than I am, I'm afraid, um, and who have been doing much more diligent uh, research than I have. Um, so I would like now to introduce to you Kathleen uh, Garces Foley, um, who is going to talk about one of the components of this landscape, the public voice of Latino Protestantism. Kathleen. It's been such a pleasure to work on this project with Richard because he is a native. I was amazed when we started three years ago, he actually could refer to the freeways by their names instead of their numbers, <laughs> which I learned is really helpful because the traffic report goes by the names when you want to know which freeways are completely blocked. So I've, I've come a long way in three years. So the public voice of Latino Protestantism. Hardly a week goes by when the newspapers don't have some new story confirming that Latinos are quickly becoming the new majority in California. And while the old majority, the Anglos, might prefer to ignore these facts, Latino leaders insist that we take them seriously. And among them are Protestant pastors who are working to build a unified voice that can have a more powerful impact in the public arena. Behind this, <clears throat> excuse me, behind this public voice will be an infrastructure of organizations that can interface effectively with community agencies and train a whole new generation of pastors with the know-how and the savvy to move between sectors. This paper describes two organizations that are making strong headway in this direction in Los Angeles, Amen and the Hispanic Initiative. Now, they're not the only organizations in L.A. working on this goal, but in my interviews with Protestant pastors, they came up most frequently, and at present, they have the most credibility among the Latino Protestant community. While President Bush's faith-based initiative and its promise of grant money has been a major motivator for getting organized, the goals of these organizations go far beyond providing social services. 
what they want is a place at the table, at the local and national level. They want their voice to have an impact on granting agencies, on the media, on political bodies. But given the tremendous diversity among Latino Protestants, cultural, economic, denominational, theological, political, generational, etc., building a unified front is no easy task. And so in this paper, I'm going to discuss the strategies that Amen and the Hispanic Initiative have used to create a coalition and how they work to overcome what I see as the major fault lines that lie beneath these fragile alliances. Roughly 71% of U.S. Latinos are Catholic and 23% are Protestant, with the vast majority belonging to Pentecostal or Evangelical churches, what I refer to as conservative Protestants. Latinos are the fastest growing sector in U.S. Protestantism, and the failure of the Anglo world to take seriously their presence is one of the reasons why they have formed their own institutions. Protestant churches and organizations have been slow to welcome Latinos as members, slow to translate materials into Spanish, and to take, issue, to take stands on political issues that are important to Latinos, such as the anti-immigration legislation Prop 187. Even though this is changing, the history of racism and apathy toward Latinos is not quickly overcome. Historically, Latinos have turned to each other across denominational lines for support, and today they continue to see an advantage in doing so. Just as the African-American community has done, they want to establish their own organizations with their own funding base. Behind this push is the desire to have a more public role, which means more public visibility. Despite their growing numbers, there is still the common perception that all Latinos are Catholic. And this misperception is perpetuated by the media in Los Angeles, which typically turns to the Catholic Church when it wants an opinion on a Latino issue. Now, this is not surprising. I mean, who, after all, in the Latino Protestant world should they turn to? There is no hierarchy there to make the choice simple. Because the Protestant world is fragmented, at a very practical level, leaders recognize the need to identify some people that have the credibility from the community to speak on its behalf. And related to this is the need for organizations that have the skills and the authority to interface with community agencies. At present, agencies that want to work with Latino Christians have no one to turn to besides Catholic charities. Given their small size, Protestant Latino churches have to work together in applying for grant money if they are to compete with the big players. Over the past 10 years, there have been a series of meetings in L.A. to get the ball rolling. The creation of AMEN marked the first major milestone in the process. AMEN stands for the National Alliance of Evangelical Ministries, or Alianza de Ministerios Evangelicos Nacionales. It was founded in 1994 when 350 Latino leaders from all over the country convened in Long Beach under the sponsorship of the Pew Charitable Trust. They voted to form a grassroots ecumenical organization, the goal of which is to promote unity, among leaders, churches, and parachurch organizations, and to be a central voice for the Hispanic evangelicals in North America. Today, it has members from 27 different denominations and organizations. Led by Jesse Miranda, it has become one of the few Latino Christian organizations to have the ear of the Bush administration. And while trying to impact public policy on a national level, it is equally committed to evangelization at the grassroots level and to developing more effective leaders now, in Los Angeles, AMEN has paired with the international organization World Vision to develop a program called the Hispanic Initiative, focusing just on Los Angeles. The goal of the Hispanic Initiative is to promote unity among Christians in L.A. 
but also to train pastors in how to build capacity for providing social services. Though most Latino churches provide some kind of social assistance, they don't have the skills or the infrastructure to do so at the level which the faith-based initiative is designed to fund. So the Hispanic Initiative trains them in how to do things like a community assessment, how to set up a nonprofit, establish a board, write grants and fundraise. It too has established a national reputation and the director, Martin Garcia, has served as a consultant to the White House on how to bring Latino churches into the faith-based initiative plan. Out of the Hispanic Initiative has spawned yet another organization, La Alianza which includes representatives from 32 denominations ranging from neo-Pentecostals to mainline Protestants. The group officially started last October with a press conference at USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Its goals are things like this, to provide pastors with um, resources of, of where to refer their members for immigration assistance, to get pastors to come together with an emergency plan in, you know, in the wake of 9-11, to cut down on the duplication of training programs by developing a master calendar for LA, and so on. Like Amen and the Hispanic Initiative, La Alianza has succeeded in bridging Latinos across a denominational spectrum and channeling their energy toward more public engagement. As one pastor put it, Martin's work is helping us move beyond our small corner where we do ministry and try to put the whole picture together. In my interviews with Latino leaders connected with all of these organizations, there was a palpable excitement at the possibilities. At the same time, there's no denying the fragility of these ecumenical efforts and the tensions that arise when trying to establish organizations that can speak for such a diversity. Tensions manifest along three major fault lines to which I'll now turn, denominational, theological, and generational. The dividing line between Protestants and Protestant and Catholic Latinos in LA is sharply drawn. The wounds of the past, as one pastor put it, make it hard, if not impossible, for these groups to sit down together. Latino Protestants are deeply offended by what they perceive as the arrogance of the Catholic Church that fails to acknowledge any other Christians as legitimate, and the preferential treatment which they perceive Catholic priests as receiving in many communities in the US. This resentment, coupled with continued religious strife between Catholics and Protestants in Latin America, especially in Mexico, directly impacts the possibility of who can sit down at the table together in LA. It's very unusual for conservative Protestants and Catholics to work together, though at the national level some collaboration does occur. At the grassroots level, animosity is high, though there were a few examples of partnership that I heard of. In fact, one is in the Byzantine Latino quarter that Richard spoke of. Garcia explained to me that if he were to invite Catholics to Hispanic initiative meetings that would cause such a stir, the group would probably fold. Given the newness and the fragility of Protestant alliances, he's not willing to tackle the Protestant-Catholic divide at this time. But he's hopeful that, you know, as things settle down, dialogue may start. But he explained, I think we need to start with us because we are divided. There is still some fear among the Protestant churches. Mainline Protestant Latinos occupy an ambiguous space between conservative Protestants and Catholics. Lutherans and Episcopalians are particularly suspect. They seem to be more Catholic than Protestant to the conservatives, even though they too have historically defined themselves against the Catholic Church. In recent years, mainline Protestants have taken steps toward reconciling with Catholicism, beginning, and I'm speaking here of Latinos, 
beginning with a greater acceptance of cultural practices that were once considered idolatrous. No longer do converts to these denominations find that they must repent of their Catholic past. Many of the pastors told me that they are trying to teach their members it's okay to honor the saints as long as you don't venerate the saints. A distinction that is quite difficult to hold in practice, they told me. As a consequence, it's much easier today for mainline Latino Protestants to work with Catholics on social projects in LA. And they are often turning to the Catholic Church for resources in Spanish on liturgy and religious education that their own denominations have not created yet. While conservative Protestants may be suspicious of this growing friendliness between mainliners and Catholics, in Amen and the Hispanic Initiative, they have been willing to accept the mainliners for the greater purpose of forming a strong coalition. Closely akin to the denominational issues are theological divisions, and two issues in particular were mentioned several times. The first is social activism. There are significant differences in how these groups frame their social, the way they do social services in theological terms. On the one hand, there are those who think that social services are only there to, um, to hopefully evangelize new members, to increase their flock. And on the other end, there are those who think services should be provided unconditionally, even leaving faith out of it entirely. Between these two positions, there is no common ground. But at these meetings of ecumenical alliances, theological differences are left at the door. Many pastors express misgivings about having to work with people who have different theological motivations, but they agree the only way these organizations work is if you keep theology out of it. The second issue is homosexuality. It is a source of tension that works both for and against ecumenism among Latinos. It can be very difficult for some mainline pastors to work with conservative Protestants who are so adamantly opposed to homosexuality. But on the other hand, many of the mainline Latino pastors feel more closely aligned with their conservative Latino counterparts than with the liberal Anglo clergy in their own denominations. In fact, homosexuality is a very, very contentious issue dividing Latinos and Anglos in mainline denominations today. For example, within the Disciples of Christ denomination, the Hispanic churches have a declaration against homosexuality that is completely opposite the tolerant position espoused by the denominational clergy. And the same dynamic exists in the Episcopal Church. The shared rejection of homosexuality is a common platform that almost all Latino Protestants share. Garcia explained to me that this, along with other issues related to family values, are very, are very successful catalysts for bringing Latinos together. The third fault line is generational, the generational minefield, as one 20-something pastor put it. At issue is who best speaks for Latinos, who best understands their needs. Is it the 50-something immigrant who has always pastored a Spanish-speaking church, or the 30-something second-generation pastor who is bilingual and bicultural, who uses hip-hop in his services. Most of the Latino leadership in Amen and the Hispanic Initiative is first-generation, and there is growing sentiment that the time has come to pass the baton to the next generation. So far, it has not been easy to bring these groups together. Latino churches have long struggled with how to accommodate the needs of both, and much energy has focused on the language divisions. But the real issue is a cultural gap between immigrants and the American-born. Old-timers worry that the young are losing the traditions. They are becoming too Americanized. But the second generation is increasingly likely to see their bicultural identity as a blessing rather than a limitation. 
Rather than see themselves caught between two worlds, they increasingly see themselves as a bridge. They are also much more likely to value being part of a multicultural society and to be interested in working in multi-ethnic ministry settings. While the old guard might see this as a betrayal of the Latino community, younger pastors see no conflict in working for both Latinos and racial reconciliation. The next generation of Latino leaders brings not only a new sense of what it means to be a Latino in the U.S., but also a new understanding of how to meet the needs of Latinos in a multicultural society. As they take the baton from the immigrant generation, the image and style of Latino engagement in the public sphere, sphere is going to shift dramatically. But there are many young pastors in L.A. who are skeptical that the old guard is really ready to give up their power. In their efforts to build a strong institutional base for Latino advocacy, Protestants have shown an extraordinary openness to work across denominational, theological, and generational boundaries. This openness comes at the price of avoiding controversy, and there is some concern that fear of rocking the boat is going to limit the prophetic power of these organizations. One issue that, that, never, that was never brought up as causing problems, but I expected it to, is the ordination of women. In fact, um, it's not even on the radar of discussion. It's, so, it's such a hot topic. Um, there are a few, there are a few um, women that I was able to interview, and they feel very marginalized within the ecumenical movement, which is almost entirely male. While these alliances are fragile, there is much excitement about what lies ahead and what can be done if all of these groups work together. Skillful leadership is required to hold these linkages together and avoid the divisive issues that I spoke of. Leaders need to know how to communicate across sectors, across government and private sectors, conservative and liberal sectors, generational sectors, men and women. The current push to build ecumenical alliances in order to impact the public arena is a sign of the maturation of Latino Protestantism. While it is difficult to say how the face of Latino Protestantism is going to change as power shifts to the American-born generation, no doubt its presence will have a tremendous impact not only on the lives of Latino Christians but on the future of our country. The third uh, presentation this morning in the new religious landscapes of Southern California is Saba Sumech, who uh, is going to be speaking on Terangulus, 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 uh, capital, culture, and faith among Iranian Jews. Saba. Good morning. Los Angeles is home to the largest concentration of Iranians outside of Iran. With the Islamic Revolution of 1979 and the consequent fall of Mohammad Reza Shah and the Pahlavi dynasty, 70,000 Iranian Jews fled the newly forming Islamic fundamentalist country and regime of the Ayatollah Khomeini and flocked to the United States. Today, the Iranian Jewish community numbers roughly around 30 to 40,000 in Los Angeles alone. As more and more people came to be near their family and friends, this is becoming one of the largest community of its kind in the United States. 
What sets the Iranian Jewish community apart from other immigrant communities in Los Angeles is the financial capital and the human capital found within it. Through historical study and interviews with members of the Iranian Jewish community of Los Angeles, I have examined their ghetto mentality combined with their significant financial capital, which has enabled the community to remain insular and separate from the American Jewish community in Los Angeles. At first, this insularity prevented Iranian Jews from developing a civic identity or an interest. But the recent events in the Middle East have impelled the community to get involved and to use their resources at the local and global level. The Jewish community has existed in Persia since at least the destruction of the first temple by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 BCE. Persian Jewry suffered a blow in 642 CE with the advent of Islamic rule. Although legally protected, Jews and other religious minorities were relegated to dhimmi or second-class status. In the 16th and 17th century, after Shia Islam was adopted as the official state religion of Iran, the situation deteriorated even further for Jews. It wasn't until the secularization policy of the Pahlavi dynasty, which extended from 1925 to 1979, that Iranian Jews were finally able to participate in nearly every professional aspect of society, including business and higher education. Yet these advances were destroyed when they found themselves quickly leaving their world behind and, and immigrating to the United States to escape the Ayatollah. The Iranian experience is unique among Jewish immigrants in the United States because, unlike many other Jewish groups, they felt that they did not see, receive a warm reception from American Jews. Many said in interviews that Jewish institutions welcomed them, but the American Jews themselves did not. They believe the reason for this is that they have little in common with American Jews. They do not share the dominant Ashkenazi culture common to most American Jews, nor do they share the Iberian experience of the much smaller Sephardic minority. This sense of not belonging to the already established Jewish community was an impetus for the Iranian Jews to withdraw within their own community. Thus, when they settled in Los Angeles, their large population and financial capital enabled the community to be socially, economically, and religiously independent from the larger American Jewish community. For example, in Los Angeles, Iranian Jews quickly established their own Iranian Jewish Federation, their own synagogues, and their own social and charitable organizations. This separation has caused a lot of resentment and strife between the two communities, with American Jews complaining that Iranians are too insular and Iranian Jews continuing to feel alienated from the American Jewish experience. Iranians do not deny their long-standing reputation for being insular, and they give two reasons for it. The first is that when Iranians, Iranian Jews first moved here, they expected to return to their homeland. They sought temporary refuge from what they thought would be a short revival of Islamic fundamentalism in Iran. Thus, they did not get involved in the civic community or the local or national level of interest. This explains why Iranian Jews this explains why the Iranian Jewish experience in Los Angeles has been characterized by segregation and not integration. The second reason is due to the ghetto mentality which they had lived under for many years in Iran. Many Iranians explain that this mentality is so deeply engraved in their hearts and minds that they are not able to get rid of it, even though they are now living in a pluralistic, democratic country. 
So what is the na nature of the ghetto mentality? Iranian Jews thrived financially under the Pahlavi dynasty, yet the 1,200 years of persecution that they had experienced under Islamic rule remained with them and that consciousness was carried over to the United States. In Iran, Iranian Jews learned that they could depend only on themselves and their community. Although they did not live in literal ghettos as European Jews were forced to do so, they still generally lived, worked, and socialized only with each other. Thus, when they immigrated to Los Angeles, they formed the same type of ghettos, although these new ghettos were not places of hardship, but affluent areas such as Beverly Hills and Brentwood. The ghetto mentality, both in Iran and in America, created little dependence on people outside of the community, and thus little desire to get involved with civic life. In Iran, membership in school boards, synagogues, or any other involvement in civic life was unheard of, especially for Jews. In America, community and political involvement remained a low priority. Although many Iranian Jews became citizens when they first moved to the states, the majority did not take advantage of the voting privileges. In fact, it was during the Clinton presidency that a majority of Iranian Jews voted for the first time, almost 14 years after they got their citizenship. Many said that they did not understand the political system of this country and truly felt that voting for, for a particular party would not make a difference. A majority of older Iranians I interviewed expressed their fear of voting because they thought that they might get their names on an INS list or the government might find out their religious affiliation. Although Iranians know America's political system is different from Iran's, they maintain many of the same fears and apprehensions here. Many middle-aged Iranians said that they did not vote because they don't know who to vote for, claiming in Iran they were told who to vote for, so they really didn't understand the difference between the two political parties. Others were more generally apathetic about the voting process, asserting that never having been able to have a voice in Iran's government, they simply got used to living in a host country and not having a voice in the political system. Iranian Jews escaped to America because they wanted a life of economic and religious freedom. Although many Iranian Jews came here with little or no financial capital, they did come here with human capital and a determination to succeed. 85% of Iranian Jews are self-employed. Their knowledge of business and their extreme work ethic have made their businesses extremely successful in Los Angeles. Many of the top companies, primarily in the fields of technology, sales, and administrative support, <coughs> belong to Iranian Jews. However, I believe that the religious freedom available in America is highly valued by Iranian Jews, even more than economic freedom. Judaism is what defines Iranian Jews. They consider themselves Jewish before they are Iranian or American. Iranian Jews were observant while living in Iran, and 90% have maintained that same pre-immigration level of religious observances in the United States. Iranians assert that Judaism is what kept them alive in an anti-Semitic country, and it is what will maintain their community and in 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 their identity in a pluralistic country. Therefore, it is a top priority of Iranian parents to send their children to religious day schools to get a Jewish education. Over half of the students at Ashkenazi Jewish day schools are Iranian children. Furthermore, we are now seeing a trend in the community where Iranian children who have grown up in religious day schools are becoming more religiously observant than their parents. Not only do Iranian Jews place great importance on maintaining their religious faith, but they also place great importance on the state of Israel. 
And this is what has finally propelled the community to get involved with, and get a civic identity and get involved with American politics. The state of Israel is important to many Jews, but I would, even ar I would argue even more so to Iranian Jews because they're displaced people due to an anti-Semitic regime and thus they feel the personal need for a Jewish state. Thus, Iranian Jews have always felt that it is important to support Israel. Unlike many American Jews, Iranians do not question the Israeli government and are more conservative in regards to Israeli politics. Tra traditionally, Iranians supported Israel through Jewish charitable organizations. However, within the last 10 years, some very influential, influential Iranian businessmen have rallied to make it a top priority for the community to give financial backing to politicians who support the State of Israel. As a result of the economic resources of the Iranian Jewish community, politicians are reaching out to this community more and more. For example, in his 1992 presidential campaign, Bill Clinton made numerous trips to Los Angeles and spoke to the Iranian Jewish community, focusing on his agenda for bringing peace to Israel. As a result, a majority of the people in the community registered themselves as members of the Democratic Party. They contributed money to Clinton's campaign, and they came out in large numbers to vote for him. Similarly, a great deal of money was raised for Al Gore's 2000, 2000 presidential campaign, during which Gore attended a benefit thrown for him by Iranian Jews, and of course the majority of his speech that no night focused on the state of Israel. Today, many civic leaders, Jewish scholars, American and Israeli politicians, and heads of organizations reach out to the Jewish community, the Iranian Jewish community, because they are, they are aware of the tremendous economic resources they can provide. They also know that if Iranian Jews believe in a cause, especially when it is relevant to helping other Jews or the state of Israel, they will do everything they can to support it. Thus, there continues to be criticism of the community for ignoring local politics and taking an interest only in Israeli or Jewish politics. For example, more than half of the residents of Beverly Hills are Iranian Jews. Yet, when the city asks for support for local fire, police, and school funds, Iranian Jews donate very little time or money to any of these causes. If, however, there's a fundraiser benefiting the state of Israel, Iranian Jews will outnumber any other Jewish community in regards to participation. However, in the last couple of years, this pattern is changing, and Iranian Jews are beginning to recognize the importance of getting involved in the local civic life as well as international politics. For the Iranian Jewish community, however, local and global civic awareness are connected. It was their involvement in global politics that made Iranian Jews recognize that they could also make a difference in their community. Now, this is unlike many immigrant communities in the United States who first get involved on a local level and then move on to Washington in global politics. Once the community accepted that they were not returning to Iran and became aware of the potential influence of American of the American political system, they were encouraged and felt comfortable enough to get involved in local and community politics. The first area this involvement took place at is at Sinai Temple. This is a fascinating synagogue and day school because since its start in the 1920s, it has always been a traditional, affluent Ashkenazi temple. Yet more than half of its current students and congregation are Iranians. At first, Iranian Jews felt intimidated about getting involved in Sinai's committees or boards. 
But after attending the synagogue for 24 years and sending their children there for a Jewish education, Iranians began to show an interest in getting involved with the synagogue. Currently at Sinai, there are 12 Iranians on the board of directors, five on the executive board, and the men's club and sisterhood presidents are Iranian. More importantly, just a few years ago, the president of this well-known temple, at which approximately two to 3,000 people attend services every Saturday, was an Iranian man, Jimmy Dalshad. <coughs> now, Jimmy Dalshad is the first Iranian to run for the 2003 Beverly Hills City Council election, and he has recently just won a seat on city council. He now has the opportunity to be the mayor of Beverly Hills, and he and four other city council members are in charge of the finances, laws, regulations, and taxes of the city of Beverly Hills. The Iranian Jewish community, which once took no interest in voting, now has an Iranian city councilman and even hosts presidential hopefuls. So where do Iranian Jews fit in with the American Jewish civic community? As mentioned earlier, the Iranian and American Jewish community hardly socialize with each other outside of temple and school. Unfortunately, there is an animosity and a lack of understanding on both sides. Many American members at Sinai Temple were apprehensive of having Iranians there, let alone having an Iranian president, because they feared that the temple's traditional Ashkenazi ways would be tampered with, or as one interviewee told me, the Americans felt that Iranians would turn Sinai into a Persian bazaar. <laughs> Thus, Iranians felt that the American community tolerated them but never really accepted them. On the other hand, Americans felt and still believe that the Iranians never wanted to become a part of the already established American Jewish community. As a result of the misunderstanding and differences between the two cultures, religious leaders and teachers in schools and temples are forming dialogue groups between Iranian and American parents and children in order to bring the two communities together. Similarly, Iranian organizations such as the Iranian Jewish Federation still joins forces with already established Jewish organizations to do nonprofit work. It is within Zionist organizations such as the American Israeli Public Affairs Council, also known as APAC, that we see the younger Iranian and American Jews joining together under a single cause. Iranian teenagers and those in their 20s and 30s are heavily involved in pro-Israel organizations and are becoming increasing, increasingly politically active in them. They are less concerned with joining a specifically Iranian organization than with joining a Jewish one in which they are able to voice their opinions, raise money for Israel, and learn how they can make a difference in politics. The cause of Israel has become the meeting point at which the Iranian and American Jewish communities and their different organizations are finally uniting, both financially and politically. For example, when the Iranian government arrested 13 Iranian Jews and claimed that they were spies for Israel, many Jewish temples, leaders, organizations, and the two Jewish federations in Los Angeles got together and put political pressure on Clinton to get involved and speak out against these false allegations. More recently, Sinai Temple and the Iranian organization Magbit joined together and raised over $1 million for victims of terror in Israel. These two communities will put aside their differences in order to rally around an important Jewish cause. Although the Iranian community will always be accused of being insular, they're developing their own civic identity, which is helping them in their acculturation with American Jews. Slowly, they have been, they have been able to let go of the mentality they held onto while living under an oppressive political regime 
recognizing that they no longer have to be fearful about making their Jewish identity known. As this fear has diminished and Iranians have accepted their lives in America, they've began to embrace the democratic system that allow them to be financially successful and more importantly to practice and assert their religion openly and proudly. They've now realized that their cultural and economic resources can be used to support the causes that they embrace, such as Zionism. It has been the Iranians' Jews' interest in Israel that has finally led to their involvement in civic life in Los Angeles. The economic and human capital and the overall wealth of the community have allowed Iranian Jews of Los Angeles to remain insular, but also to move on to civic life when they choose to do so. What has prompted this shift to greater involvement is a recognition that civic life might provide a way to express the community's identity as Jews and as Iranians, and to act in the community's interest in foreign affairs. First, second, and third generation Iranians have formed a civic identity based on their Jewishness, and have now moved on to deal with other issues and topics that affect their daily lives. I believe it will only be a matter of time before Iranian Jews get involved in local and state politics, because now the drive and passion to have a civic voice have been ingrained in the identity of the community. Thank you. Third presentation is by Mason Eulis um, on the multicultural megachurch. I would like to be an extension cord to get you plugged into the Lord. Pausing to take in the laughter and applause of his congregants, Pastor Jim Reeves smiled approvingly at what seemed to be an improvised quip in the midst of his analysis of a passage from the Gospel of Luke. After a moment, however, the preacher turned his gaze back to the network of cameras whose own extension cords reached into the media nerve center of Faith Community Church of West Covina a suburb of Los Angeles. Reeves' comment might sound unconventional or even irreverent to participants in mainline Christian denominations, but this is a typical formulation for this and other seeker churches. Wade Clark Roof has explained that since seeker churches, quote, make a deliberate overture to those who are searching for answers to religious questions, they assume that people probably know very little about religious traditions. And as a result, quote, the music, the preaching, and the programs are oriented to contemporary life. Such churches attempt to accommodatingly meet religious seekers on their own terms, and in suburban Los Angeles, these terms are those of media, mass, cult, mass media culture. Excuse me. My visits uh, to Sunday services at Faith Community Church, or FCC, uh, gave me the opportunity to see how this accommodating attitude toward the form, if not necessarily the substance, of mass media popular culture looks when applied in the impressive format of a megachurch. Megachurches, as the name implies, uh, are notably large congregations often held in warehouses or large uh, amphitheaters, but just as significantly, they are churches that strive to consolidate all of the needs of a religious community in one central location. Kyman Howland Sargent notes that, quote, in an age that emphasizes the search for personal fulfillment, consumer satisfaction, and self-realization, it is not surprising that many seeker church leaders are determined to learn from America's omnipresent shopping malls 
which offer customers an almost unlimited variety of goods and choices, all packaged for convenience and easy consumption. Faith Community Church is an excellent example of this type of model, and it offers not only church services, but educational classes for adults and children, activity groups based upon sports, hobbies, and other shared lifestyle interests, a coffee shop serving Starbucks coffee and a bookshop, childcare, and an ongoing series of special events, workshops, retreats, and entertainment. Megachurches and seeker churches are, as both Sargent and Roof observe, increasingly common manifestations of Christianity in the United States. However, FCC is noteworthy because of its foregrounded embrace of racial and ethnic diversity. Through a description and analysis of my as-yet preliminary research findings, I will document the role uh, of these forms of difference in the secret uh, megachurch and offer some analysis. On the day of my first visit to FCC, I turned the corner of East Badillo Street amazed by the procession of cars flooding both into and out of the church's enormous parking lot. Orange traffic cones and a police officer helped to maintain order on the street itself, but as, I soon, as soon as I pulled into the church lot, members of the FCC parking ministry came into view. <laughs> Suddenly nervous that the energetic Grateful Dead concert that had buoyed my journey through the crowded highways of Los Angeles might offend the sensibilities of a church-going crowd, I switched off my radio and rolled down the window to receive parking instructions. I laughed at my naivete uh, when a mild cacophony of hip-hop and Spanish pop music coming out of nearby cars reached my ears. In fact, my experience parking and entering the church felt similar to arrival at a rock concert. As I made my way with the crowd toward the front doors, it was apparent to me that unlike some other church-going crowds that I have experienced, uh, most of these people were quite excited to be there. In fact, I was a bit excited myself as a smiling member of the greeting ministry handed me a program and told me, God bless you. In the expansive outer lobby, omnipresent television screens displayed a band energetically performing Christian rock music, and it was only when the nearest door to the main sanctuary opened that I realized that this was in fact the beginning of the service. I had arrived a minute late. A group of people indeed appearing to be a racially and ethnically diverse one a quick glance and an open ear noticed an apparently comfortable assortment of African-American, white, Latino, and Asian-American participants milling around outside the sanctuary. Several tables were set up in this room, covered both in free pamphlets and brochures, as well as books, tapes, CDs, and videos for sale. These included recordings of FCC sermons, uh, some available immediately after the service itself, um, amazingly, as well as books and professionally produced videos on a variety of topics uh, that heavily emphasized family, therapeutic, and recovery language. Along with the crowd, I entered the sanctuary, uh, greeted by an FCC, or perhaps I should say encouraged by an FCC encourager, uh, as the doors opened and I was hit by the bass and compressed air uh, of the loud, amplified praise music being performed by a rock band on stage uh, that was accompanied by a large uh, choir. A series of ushers waved me into a section of seating about halfway back in the cavernous auditorium. I put my program and brochures on the seat, compelled to stand along with everyone else and join in the clapping, if not the singing. 
Participants appeared not to be seated in uh, groups of one or another ethnic group. Race and ethnicity are not the only visible forms of difference at FCC. In my visits there so far, I've been seated near a quiet 20-something white woman who stood up and sat down with the crowd but declined to sing or clap, simply clutching her purse. A middle-aged African-American man dressed in a suit whose fervent and frequent interjections punctuated the entire service in the style of a black gospel call and response. A conservatively dressed Latino couple, apparently in their 60s. A group of very fashionably dressed Asian-American teenage women who energetically sang every word of each song. I have been seated near a group of young men wearing leather jackets, uh, sporting mullet hairstyles and Christianized versions of heavy metal band logos on their t-shirts. A hooded goth teenager draped from head to toe in black clothing and body piercing, standing next to what appeared to be his proud, conservatively dressed grandfather and mother. <laughs> and I have observed a wide range of appearances and levels of formality. The diversity that I observed in the crowd is carefully modeled on the stage. Between, uh, behind the lead singer uh, of the band and apart from the large choir, which is also um, visibly diverse, is a line of four other main singers, two men and two women, all representing different racial and ethnic groups. As the lead singer enunciates the praise ly lyrics, congregants sing along from either, uh, either from memory or assisted by huge television screens that flash each line in between footage of the band members. The stage has the appearance more of a, a television or movie set than a traditional church. The iconography of media culture is strongly represented by large screens, cameras, um, and the band, but the decor of the entire church notably omits any Christian symbols. A central bank of television cameras near the soundboard remains fixed upon the leaders of the service, while a team of camera operators fan out across the stage, amongst the band members, in front of the large choir, and throughout the crowd, snaking through with cables trailing behind. The services are uh, primarily divided into three portions. The sermon, a kind of, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, the three portions being um, this uh, session of praise music that I've described, the sermon, and a kind of catch-all period in between. As the songs come to an end, there is a period of time in which a number of different things can take place before the sermon or message gets underway. The week of my first visit was also the, week, uh, the first weekend of the U.S. war against Iraq, and it was at this point in the service that Pastor Reeve announced Operation Prayer Shield, which consisted of uh, the distribution of a list of people in the, in the military uh, submitted by church members for one whom was encouraged to pray. On two other occasions, at this time, small crackers and grape juice were circulated and congregants were encouraged to join in celebrating the Lord's Supper. On my most recent visit, there were several baptisms at this point in the service, which took place in an aquarium-like chamber on a stage behind a glass pane and, of course, displayed on uh, large screens. A fixture of this intermediary stage of the service is the presentation of a fascinating series of television advertisements for future events in the church. The house lights are lowered, and on screens, uh, a series of clearly recognizable ad genres are represented. The subjects of these advertisements range from uh, a general ad to the, for the children's ministry to specific ads for uh, special Easter services and special visiting preachers. 
The ads are received with raucous applause, and there is usually one more song before Pastor Reeve emerges to deliver his message. On one occasion before sermonizing, he paused to ask for the audience cooperation in shouting out a slogan to be filmed and used in an upcoming advertisement. We did several takes. <laughs> Having experienced roughly 45 minutes of this exuberant but pop culturally aware worship, the congregation seems to be uh, attentively tuned into Pastor Reeve when the previous hubbub and cacophony subsides and he is spotlighted alone on the expansive stage. Since not a moment is unprogrammed in this church, the congregation is cued in to realize that even Reeve's pauses are significant. His demeanor is casual, his carefully planned messages model improvisation, and the central points of his address are woven into a compelling narrative. One of the more traditionalist aspects of the church is that each, each of his sermons, at least those that I have heard, is structured around the exegesis of one or more biblical passage. The content of his messages routinely stress several messages which stem from common evangelical theological bases as well as common seeker church ideological bases. The messages are usually personal rather than communal in nature and stress the importance and obligations of a Christian individual. Personal character issues and development are emphasized, the message frequently being one of balance. Godly people are seen to recognize their imperfection and should strive to avoid extremes. Reeve also emphasizes a broad concept of healing, addressing issues ranging from addictions, depression, financial difficulties, and family problems. Reeve's theological position is quite conservative, but is presented in a friendly and casual manner that implies that one would not need to immediately agree with conservative theology or even really be particularly aware of it right away. The pop, culture pre pop cultural presentation of ideology and the pop psychology preaching style of Reeve communicate a message that a godly life is reasonable and desirable, desirable by any standards, not just those of a devoted Christian ideologue. However, this is not to imply that there is any deception involved. If the church is gentle about advancing its theology to seekers, it does distribute a statement of faith to each attendant of its new guest reception that outlines a clearly conservative evangelical theology. As I've attempted to, dis to demonstrate, um, racial and ethnic diversity and difference are clearly and outwardly displayed and celebrated by FCC. However, um, any ideological position on the meaning of difference is not as easily determined. This is due to the fact that the subjects of difference and of the multi-ethnic nature of the church itself are not often directly addressed. The most common way that I have seen these topics enter the spoken discourse of FCC is when Reeve will bring them up in a humorous light, often laughing at or with stereotypes. An example of this was Reeve's explanation of the church's no tambourine policy, which was to avoid people making distracting noises if they could not play in time. Um, like some of the, quote, white sisters who do not have good rhythm. In a later sermon, Reeve explained that God had taken away Jacob's prideful strut and that although middle-aged white guys, as he said, like him, might not understand this, others in the congregation might. Another element of difference that is conspicuous at FCC, both as apparent to me as a visitor and as present in Reeve's discourse, is that of class and economic situation. The church itself is located in a working-class neighborhood and as misleading as any such appearance-based judgments can be, seems to draw at least significantly from a working-class constituency. 
Reef talks quite a bit about the importance of economic well-being, both by acknowledging the, differences, uh, the difficulties that uh, members of the congregation are facing and by asserting that God gives financial award, rewards to the faithful. Stopping well short of advocating a gospel of wealth position, Reeve nonetheless makes the fascinating claim that God will make one's dishwasher last longer and one, one's car break less often if one has faith. <coughs> Further, he prays the following with those in his congregation in financial straits. Lord, give us entrepreneurial ideas that will make us lots of money. Class, however, can be understood also as a stand-in for race and ethnicity. In some instances, non-white groups enter Reeves' discourse when discussing economic or other disadvantage. Noting that he will never know what it is like to be a black woman and deal with racism, he claims, quote, everything ain't equal. This was in the context of a sermon built around the assertion that God's favor is a consequence, not a coincidence. Rather than explain racism and inequality as some deserved consequence that demonstrates God's lack of favor, which could easily have been done at this point. Reeve asserts that nonetheless, all people can make a difference if they choose to follow God. Other discussions of disadvantage that are similar in other respects while omitting any direct or overt reference to race or ethnicity can be seen as ways of addressing these topics indirectly. As has been argued, uh, the multi-ethnic and multicultural aspect of FCC is clearly foregrounded and a part of the identity of the church. However, um, I have also mentioned that race and ethnicity do not figure prominently in the discourse of the church. What then are the meanings of difference and pluralism in the context of FCC? My analysis, preliminary uh, though it is, is that difference is indeed recognized and tolerated or even celebrated, uh, but ultimately in order to bring these differences under the umbrella of a more important universal, that of evangelical Christianity. Difference and pluralism, then, are not the primary concerns in this multi-ethnic megachurch, but are concerns of a second order that serves the primary religious mission. However, being secondary concerns does not change the fact that they really are concerns. While this approach can be seen to minimize the importance of difference by the clear implication that beneath it all, we're all the same, it also creates an atmosphere in which racists are likely to feel uncomfortable and unwelcome. This approach also, uh, welcome, excuse me, this approach also recognizes the utility of inclusivity the more open and welcoming FCC can be to people of diverse backgrounds and identities, the more successful the church will be in its goal of winning converts to Christianity. Acceptance and celebration of difference is, in addition to its other positive values, therefore, a valuable technique to increase market share. Thus, while religious communities are often understood to form around commonalities and race and ethnicity, FCC explicitly denies this model. Um, I'll conclude with the, um, again, preliminary uh, analysis that perhaps, in this case, mass media popular culture it, uh, itself can be seen as a stand-in for ethnicity in this case, where race and ethnicity are recognized in order to be neutralized in the service of the larger goals of evangelical Christianity. Thank you. Each of the um, uh, panels 
uh, provides enough time for us to make comments and questions. And we certainly would love to hear uh, from you uh, with regards to uh, the development of our project over the next uh, six to eight months. Before we do that, while you're thinking of a good question to ask or a comment to make, uh, weren't, these, weren't they incredible? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was just remembering, I was just remembering their own intellectual uh, uh, journeys here. They're, all three of them are in our doctoral PhD program. Um, uh, Mason came from the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, came with a lot of knowledge about the study of religion. Uh, and um, uh, Saba did her uh, undergraduate work in uh, UC Berkeley, then went to Harvard, to the uh, Harvard Divinity School, and then came here. And then finally, uh, Kathleen was at Notre Dame University, and then went to the Jesuit school at the Graduate Theological University. And you can see all of those years of commitment and study coming to fruition in the kind of research these young people have done, which is just stunning, I felt. Um, so now, your comments and questions. Uh, Gustav. As the, uh, it's on? Yes, it's on. It is on, okay. As the changes uh, take place toward a, a greater uh, um, experience of the United States within the uh, Iranian Jewish community, uh, what's going on in terms of intermarriage between Iranian Jews and American-born Jews? Is, is there anything, any development in that area? That's a great question. Um, the rabbi at Sinai Temple, Rabbi David Wolpe, uh, he does numerous sermons because it is such a huge congregation with so many Iranians and so many Americans, Jews. He does, he does a lot of sermons on a Jew is a Jew. It doesn't matter. And if you have an issue with your daughter marrying a Jewish boy, then you don't belong here. And if you have an issue with your son marrying an Iranian woman, then you don't belong here. But it's very interesting because it is... He's American, you know, where for other Jews, for American Jews, it might be, oh, he's Christian, but it's like, oh no, he's American. But my sister is a great example. She married a man who converted to Judaism and um, an American man, and it was a huge problem within the community, not with my family, but just within the community because well, he's not coming from Jewish blood and stuff. And of course, someone who converts ends up taking nine months of classes at University of Judaism and knows more about Judaism than anyone else in my family at this point. But, um, but you know, then it was just, it, people were just making comments of like, at least just marry an American Jew where you're going to the, you know. So it's getting a little better though now. Um, you know, the community's come a long way and they're both accepting each other a little more. But what you do see is that Iranians want to marry Iranians and Americans, you know, they would like to get into the culture, but it's just, they can't. One of the things that hit me, I, I'd like some clarification on so I don't misunderstand, is that I didn't get any feeling of faith in action except within the individual groups. Like, where is the social conscience in terms of the larger community? Um, I can speak to that to some extent. Um, that was one of the questions I had in... in my mind in visiting this particular site. Um, it's not at the forefront 
of the issues in this this particular megachurch. Um, as best as I feel qualified to speak about their intentions at this point, it seems as though they're very very concerned about what's going on in the world. Mentioned political situations. Uh, the the war was a frequent um, topic of conversation in a number of contexts. Uh, but in terms of the actual daily activities and the things that uh, participants are encouraged to do, uh, it's very much an individual uh, and inward uh, building of, of their community, not a, an outreach um, emphasis. Uh, so it's not it's not a uh, an isolationist group in the sense that um, there's no value in thinking about social issues outside the church, but it's certainly not on the on the, the top of the list of priorities. Within the um, Protestant community, I'm, what I'm describing is all about faith in action, is about let's take our faith and out of our little world that we've been turned into and put it out there on the streets for the betterment of Latinos and for the issues that Latinos care about, such as housing, um, health insurance, immigration is would be top of the list, immigration legislation. 